0: Thanks, band. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome back to most of you if you're visiting. Uh, Thanks again, as Spence said earlier, for coming to our church this morning. And um, whether it's just learning with us or kind of considering the claims of Christ for the first or second time or just worshiping with us, we're glad uh, you guys are here. Uh, We are in Judges right now, starting to wrap up a series in this book, which we've been in uh, for a while now, a few months at least. I kind of forget when we started the thing, but... Uh, we have three weeks left, including this week, uh, one more week on the last named judge of, of the book, uh, who is Samson, talk about him a little bit more in a second, and then a couple of wrap-up weeks, which go over some uh, interesting, what was life on the ground like when the judges ruled, kind of, kind of passages and sermons, which are really dark, uh, there's reason for that, and we'll, we'll cross those bridges uh, next week, but we're, we are getting there. A couple of introductory comments on Judges, Judges is a book about redemption, Uh, buying people back or winning people back from a state of being oppressed and enslaved, uh, which is literally what the word means, at least biblically, but also how we use it today, but especially um, biblically. God cares about the oppressed. He hears the cries of people. He loves and he goes to rescue them. And basically, Judges is about that cyclically, over and over and over again, as if uh, they kind of uh, copied and pasted it all throughout the book about a dozen times. You get the microcosm of the human experience and the whole the biblical storyline, basically, in each of these cycles, where sin occurs, distance from God uh, ensues, exile from God, and then God hears a cries of despair and answers with raising up a deliverer figure. This is exactly what happens with Christ later in the story. He is what we call the fulfillment of these narratives. Uh, but before we get there, we have a collection about these stories, these savior figures or judges uh, who serve to uh, kind of eradicate these evil nations and figures from this, this, the occupying nations from this land that God is giving, kind of bequeathing and giving to uh, his people in love, in spite of their sin, not because they're good, but because he's giving uh, it to them by grace, a land where he has promised to be especially present. So even that becomes a picture of, of really what God is up to in history and in the biblical story about bringing people into a new Eden, if you know how the Bible begins, where there's a garden called Eden, things are utopic, they're perfect. God is enough for Adam and Eve. Uh, they, there's really no laws kind of governing the land, no, no uh, morality kind of written down. It's just God himself is walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and things are perfect. It's, and we'll talk about Genesis 3 actually a little bit later today. It's when temptation away from that, away from that being enough comes in that all hell breaks loose. But basically then, as I was kind of already hinting at, Theologically then, as we read these stories in the way that the Bible reads them and stories like them, so especially the way the New Testament approaches these Old Testament narratives that occur earlier in the story, we see that they serve a prophetic purpose symbolically of anticipating Jesus and his church's experience through faith. And so for more of a rationale on that, we we encourage you guys to look at maybe our first Judges sermon if you want. I spent a whole sermon on this basically uh, talking about more of a biblical rationale for seeing Christ in all the scriptures, I uh, encourage you to check that out if you want on our podcast or website, or especially, even better, uh, talk to myself or one of our overseers or another leader that you know at the church that would I'm um, sure love to talk to you more about this if it if it's new. But here's what I mean by this this idea, this uh, cheat sheet idea. This is the last week we'll look at this, I, I believe. I don't think we'll have a big need to these next two weeks to wrap the book up. But especially as we looked at named judges, named judges like Samson, uh, this, this cheat sheet, I hope, has been helpful, and, and I'll say it again here one last time for those of you, uh, it's, it's new to. But the judges then prefigure Christ. Israel, sometimes the judges, a lot of times the judges too because they're sinners, prefigure us as being just people shown grace to by a gracious God, even though they're sinners. Other nations typify sin and death, the true oppressive enemies of God's people and all of humanity. And th- this idea of having land and rest, I talked about that, prefigures Christ as well and salvation experience. But These first two lines are important because uh, just to understand and be okay with nuance, it's very important in our interpretational methodology biblically to know that at the exact same time, uh, judges can prefigure Christ in some kind of like good ways and shadowy ways, uh, but they can also prefigure us in their sin. And that's been happening throughout the book. If you've been here, you've seen this. This is the first time. You'll see today how Samson, yet again, uh, is sort of both at at the same time and we will basically lay the sermon out that way here in, uh, in just a minute. But uh, today is Samson week three, this idea of victorious death. We'll look at all of or most of uh, Judges chapter 16. This is one of the more famous passages in the Bible where Samson, who's super strong because God gives him that, that uh, supernatural strength, gets tricked by his Philistine wife Delilah who's being paid off by other Philistines to do this, a large sum of money, into revealing the secret of his strength, which is his long hair. Uh, which he, if you remember, was a Nazarite from birth. And uh, a Nazarite in the Old Testament, to take that Nazirite vow was to say, I will let my hair grow out, I will not drink wine, I will begin this vow with a, uh," it's a predetermined amount of time that that the Nazirite would, um, uh, the vower would, would kind of dictate, but it would begin with a sacrifice. And then it would be just kind of this idea where you would especially consecrate and dedicate your life to God, to serving him, but especially his people, in different uh, capacities but one of those marks again was was his his long hair and at one juncture in this story we'll see Delilah basically like wears him down and he he gives it up he offers it and says "All right, this is it this is where my strength is it's in my long hair if you cut it I'll be just as weak as any man so then that happens he's captured but then his hair starts to grow back and he's given one last little bit of strength at the end of his life uh, to collapse this large building himself included Onto himself but thousands of philistines and in that way to save israel from their oppression so in a couple of sentences that's basically what we're going to read maybe you've heard that story this is might be the most famous story uh say famous just because you know uh, maybe the most likely one to find in a kid's bible although you don't see a lot of judges narratives in uh you know cartoony form in kids bibles because they're just like totally rated r but this one might might have been so maybe you've come across this even if you don't know much about the bible uh, but that's basically it. So let's go back and read this almost in full. Going to skip around a little bit uh, in two sections though today. So first, we'll look through verse twenty-two, essentially that sets up um, the narrative about his death. So this is sort of the first part is this exchange, these four this fourfold exchange with Delilah, and how he's captured, and the last part is, is the circumstances surrounding his death, which is super cool, really important to understand and see how that points us to Christ. We'll we'll get there in a minute. But let's start with 16, 4 to 6, 15 to 22. In verses 1 to 3, he sleeps with a prostitute, unnamed prostitute, does some really weird things, carrying a door up a hill. It's almost actually, it could be a sermon in itself. We're just not going to do it this series. If you want to know why he's doing that, it's super weird, but also really uh, kind of important and Christ-like in some ways. Uh, Talk to us, love to buy a coffee over it, but we're just not going to do it. Verse 4, after that, though, uh, he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, a Philistine woman whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. So just to skip down a little bit here, and summarize. Basically, this exchange happens four times. The, the first three times, Samson lies back to Delilah. So she asks him, and he says something just untrue, like if you use certain kinds of cords or whatever, then I won't be able to break, break free from them. And he lies to Delilah. It becomes clear right away that whatever he said would limit his power doesn't do that. And then Delilah comes back and said, come on, what are you doing? You're lying to me I'm your wife. And so that happens three times, but then she comes back a fourth time, which goes uh, like this in verse 15 and following. And she said to him the fourth time, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved... Then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called the man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So kind of a classic. We've been in Samson for three weeks now. Uh, this is sort of uh, like the end of a two-part, you know, the second installment of a trilogy where there's a little bit of hope. It's very dark, uh, but a little bit of hope here at the end with this hair growing back. We'll, we'll finish up in just a second. But two perspectives today, which we've been doing throughout this series. We're going to read the rest of this in a second to look at the latter. But uh, the two perspectives are, as we already mentioned, uh, Christ, the, the Christ figure piece but the man piece. So we'll start with the man piece, Samson the man and then read the rest and look at uh, how it really ends in a way that just, um, it's clearly not about Samson. He falls to the back. In fact, that, that verse that Spencer read about John the Baptist saying, I'm baptizing, but now it's about me falling to uh, sort of the back and the, the veils are going to close on me. It's, it's time for me to come off the stage. It's about Christ being center stage. That's what's happening with Samson too. He has this moment in, in the limelight. It, this is kind of his time to serve and judge and minister and save and, and had the story kind of revolve around him. But it's clear at the end, he's stepping back and Christ is stepping forward. And uh, now it's about Christ being Samson or kind of what Samson was, was meant to be, what he's pointing to. And we'll uh, come to that. But first, let's talk about Samson the man. We were doing this last week and we're going to keep, and this is the bad, the bad news, uh, usually when you read yourself into Old Testament narratives, uh, that's the point. Is to see wow things are way worse than I thought these these narratives inform really what's going on in here whether we feel it uh, know it uh, or not uh, so Samson the man will add to his rap sheet here uh, character wise it, it continues to be I think uh, almost impossible to believe that this is the guy God has chosen to judge or or to save Israel he's reckless he's selfish. Uh, angry we saw that last week he's murderous he's sexually sinful Uh, before this remember he sleeps with the prostitute he's in a terrible marriage where both parties in the marriage are each using each other for money and sex respectively so super healthy right it's just it's just terrible it's like the epitome of uh, terribleness in, in in a marital setting and then and then last week we talked too about how he's supposed to be driving the philistines out of the land that's that is the job description of a judge and yet, instead, he's having sex with them and marrying them and falling in love with them, which is the epitome of compromising. He is being disobedient to God flat out. God said, Do this, and Samson's going a million miles an hour the other way. God said, Eradicate the Philistines. And Samson's saying, I, I'm intermingling myself, I'm wrapping myself bodily and spiritually around sin. And what you said needed to be eradicated. What you're calling evil, I am calling worthy of marriage. I mean, that, that, that is the story of the human experience. What, what God has called evil and wicked, humans have said, not that bad. And we've flirted with it. And we've ultimately given ourselves completely over to it sexually, which is why judges call sin spiritual whoredom and prostitution. And so that was for another day. I can't go back into that today. But that's why it says that. So, compromiser, disobedient, calls evil good. This is just his rap sheet that just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. But yet got the guy that God chose to be uh, a savior figure. So, but here, here's the thing. I, I list all that out for context, but it is also to say this: as bad as things are, it's actually something else—an underlying spiritual condition—that leads to his downfall. It's not those things so much. I mean, it is that, but. It's something else, the underlying spiritual condition that kind of breeds that, that leads to his, his downfall. And to help us see this, we have to consider this question right here. Why did he give up his hair secret at all? I just realized it's kind of weird to say it that way, hair secret. How do you do your hair? But anyway, <laughs> didn't realize that for service, but that's unintentional. Uh, why did he give up his, his hair secret, though, at all? We could say his things like his love of sex clearly clouded his judgment on some level, or that it simply had to do with her persistence because it says his soul was vexed to death when she kept bothering him and, and, pers- and persisting before him and so he just gave in. And maybe that's all a part of it, probably is, but still, we still have to ask the question and the realization here, maybe you kind of felt this during the narrative, it's weird because he still had to know what she was up to, right? He had to know. In fact, this whole thing kind of happened two chapters ago where he marries a Philistine and the Philistine's kind of like, paid off or incited by other Philistine guys to go and say, go and trick uh, uh, Samson to tell us the, the riddle. Remember that if you he were here for that? It's basically the same thing happening over again. A little bit higher level here, but basically the same thing. So, and he knew what happened there. So, it's at least suspicious, if not outright obvious, that she's trying to entrap him. So, unless he's the, like the biggest fool in in the history of mankind, which I guess is on the table, but unlikely. Unlikely. So, um, so what, what helps answer this question of why is later in the passage, we see that after he gave up his secret and is very likely aware of her motives, he agrees to fall asleep on her lap. And so it's, it's kind of like, um, here's my hair to cut if you want kind of posture with his body, you know, like, are you kidding I mean, if, if you know this is it, if you think this is where your power is, like, you know, wear some kind of metal hat with a lock on it or something, you know? <laughs> like, why, why would you, why, why, are you kidding? It's, it's almost like he's falling asleep in a barber's chair. Like, cozying up in a barber's chair, letting his locks flow over the end there and, and just thinking, oh, what could go wrong? You know, kind of thing. It's, it's crazy. So, but more than that, when he wakes with a shaved head, and, and you could ask, as, as I do with this, was he actually asleep? I don't think he was. I, I think he was in and out of sleep or, because can you really sleep when someone's cutting your hair like that or, or shaving your head especially? So I don't think he's actually asleep either, and that adds to this. But when he, when he wakes, knows what's going on, aware of he, his wife's motives, he says this, I'll just go out as before and fight the Philistines and completely dominate them as I always do. That's Chris Walker's paraphrase, but basically that's what it says. Then it says, this is the key, He did not know that the Lord left him. It's a really sobering statement. He did not know that the Lord had left him. So here's what this tells us. Try to just kind of follow the the theological logic here, the flow of the narrative uh, from from top to bottom. Here's what this tells us. The relationship between giving away the secrets and uh, or with his brazen confidence with a shaved head tells us that Samson didn't really believe that his strength was in his hair. Must not have. It's the only thing thing, thing that makes sense. It, It tells us that he didn't really believe his strength was in the Nazarite vow. In other words, from God, this is what it means. He thought his strength came from him. Saying my hair is not that important was the same as saying God is not that important. It's the same as saying I'm enough. He was neglecting the strength and the grace that God gave him before his birth. And this is, we almost can't say too much about it. This is such a big theme here and in the Bible. This is narratively though, right here in Judges 16. This is clearly, by, just by far, the biggest threat in Judges 16. It's not the Philistines. The biggest threat is Samson thinks he's strong. That's the biggest threat. The, the other sins are really bad too, but they're symptoms. They're not the ultimate cancer. Samson's self-perceived strength pushed God away from him. This is the chief sin of Samson's life. We saw his arrogance before, but we're really seeing it now. In, in the previous narratives, if you were here for that, we saw his arrogance before big time. It comes out in, in anger and in all kinds of selfishness and things like that. But here we see, I don't need God. What, what God did before I was born, it's not important. Strength, my supernatural strength is actually natural, and, and it comes from me. That's why he was so cavalier with his wife in revealing the secret. But here's the thing, to connect these dots here, this is the chief sin in our life as well. This is why the narrative exists in part, is to reveal this. This is the chief sin in every human being's life. Here it serves as this kind of main Philistine-like enemy of the biblical storyline, but in our life, uh, it is the principal thing too. It's actually in in the beginning of the Bible, uh, it's what the devil whispered in the ears of Adam and Eve. In the very beginning, he whispered, you're strong. You're strong, Adam and Eve. You don't need God that much. It wasn't an outright uh, denial, an atheistic denial that he exists. It was a whisper that you can be like God if you eat of this fruit. You are inherently mighty and powerful and able and capable of eating that fruit that God said you would die from and living and thriving This is the whisper, sort of the hyperlink of that whisper that you get in Genesis 3. That's the implications. The devil whispering that, that clearly Samson at this juncture in history is entertaining uh, to the uttermost and believing, and we have as well. And it's why the gospel counters it so much. The, The gospel tells us the opposite. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us and shows us that we are weak. It tells us we can't do it. It tells us about God's grace and how amazing that is at the expense of our works, because our entire narrative as human beings is built around self-perceived strength. And it warns us in the New Testament uh, in places like Galatians, I think it's 6.3, where it says, do not think you are something when you are nothing. And so there's warnings in the New Testament too. It's like these glorious pictures of what Jesus has done for us, which shows us that we're weak and God is strong, and he's our judge. We're not the judge of our own selves. But then it warns us against the, the possibility of slipping in as Christians into the other way of thinking, thinking that we deserve it or we've earned it or that um, we think we're actually kind of something. Our name is strong versus God's name uh, being, being strong alone. So this led to Samson's downfall and it, and it has to ours as well. Uh, it's not like it will lead to our downfall. I mean, it will, but the, the point of the Bible is it already has. Like, we've already fallen as far as we can. There's no, we can't go any further. You know, so, so sexual sin will, to kind of pull from some themes here, sexual sin will ruin you, but pride will all the more. And that's what we're seeing in, in this narrative. Sexual sin's kind of ruining him. It's clouding his judgment. Uh, we see that elsewhere in the Bible and in our lives. But pride, will, pride is the sin sort of behind all other sins, it's, it's, it's this instead of being duped into thinking that we're good, that we're powerful, and that leads to thoughts like we're stronger than, than evil and we don't need God and, or maybe we're above his laws and they don't apply to us. And so power is this vicious thing. Power inside and outside the church, uh, Christian or not, power is this kind of ultimate thing that uh, seeped into the hearts of Adam and Eve and every human being since, and clearly here Samson. And, and so practically, too, this is, this is a big deal. For those in the room interested in doing good, pr- probably most of you, if not all, so interested in doing good, or just to speak to Christians for a second, Titus 2 says we need to be zealous for good works. So this is, this is part of the Christian story is to, is to do good you know, from the right motive. And so uh, for those interested, though, in doing good, what this is saying, and this is tricky, so hang with me, this is saying it's impossible to think that you're strong and to be a good person at the same time. It's impossible to think you're morally good and to do good at the same time. It's kind of like, what? You know? This is why the Bible's hard to read sometimes. In, in the New Testament, it's kind of saying both. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Why are you saying good when you're saying I can't do good? You know, so we have these kind of interactions all the time in the, the, the letters, for example, in the New Testament, a little bit more prepositionally and statement-driven-wise. Uh, that we have to wrestle with. And here, narratively, it plays out too. Thinking you're strong leads you to bad things. If I think I'm a good person or strong, that will actually breed pride. And pride leads to not praying that much at all because why would I pray? I don't need God as much. Less dependence on God. That will lead to thinking more about myself than Jesus and certainly more than other people. Why would I think about people that are lower than me? Right? Right? So all of this leads to either wickedness or wrongly motivated goodness. And both are bad in the Bible. Wickedness and wrongly motivated goodness are both deemed sinful and something, die, something that Jesus died for. Thinking we're strong only leads to those two outcomes or some version of that. But when we understand we're weak and that God has saved us by grace, everything's been given, nothing's been earned, as 1 Corinthians 4 says, everything's given, nothing's earned. That breeds love. And love flowing from a faith-filled response to love that God has shown us on that cross 2,000 years ago, that is true goodness. That's where goodness comes from. So, you know, I think the warning here to pull from the narrative, this is how it preaches to us. It says, on the human level, be very, very wary of thinking you are strong you would not be the first person in, hu- in human history to fall away from God completely after doing so, thinking you're strong. You would fall right in line with tens of thousands of people who have tasted the gospel but haven't ingested the fact that they are weak and allowed that sort of to humbly inform how they view the gospel and God and themselves, and, and they've walked away. happened in Jesus' day. It was pride that kept people from God. It's pride. It was the message of you can't do it. It was lawyers and law keepers. It was the religious people and the pastors of the day when they were kind of the, the the quote unquote good people who were confronted with this idea that that it's it's Jesus. It's all Jesus or nothing, and they couldn't handle it. So, so here here the this is the the stinging thing, but the, the glimpse of good news here is we are weak, but we're loved. Loved but weak—that that, that should be a mantra for your life. If you're a Christian, you're you're weak but you're loved. Yes, they're intention, but they're both gloriously true. And we can't really have one of them without without the other. We think we're strong. Well, then it's we deserve love, and that's not really love. So when you come to terms with this idea, we can actually receive the gospel. And you know, one of my prayers this week um, is sort of because this is this is our cultural narrative too, right? Is You're strong, you can do it, you can take the mountain. Don't let anybody ever say you can't do anything. I mean, that's like, you know, anathema. That's like a cursed statement. That's like, you know, heresy of the culture, of the the culture. The religion of our culture is uh, you're pretty awesome and, and you're strong, which it's not, this shouldn't shock us with this book, right? If you know the story, it's like it's been here. The way history began was God making things perfectly and the temptation was you don't need God that much, you're pretty good. So one of my prayers this week for you guys and for myself, I was praying, I usually pray in the sanctuary here during the week through the blue cards, but just knowing this was coming, I, I was praying that we would not sink our teeth into the, into the fruit of the, was the tree that Adam and Eve ate from? That they would, we would not sink our teeth into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but that we would sink our teeth into the fruit of the gospel. So, so you don't know the story, that the, the really bad tree in the beginning that God said don't eat from, wasn't the tree of devil worship. It was not the tree of murder. It was not the tree of adultery. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what set things into this kind of hellbound spiral downwards, is people thinking, you know, I can taste this power and I can handle it. That that I'm kind of like God now because I know these things. I'm a law unto myself. I know what's good, I know what's evil, and implied, I can do enough good. And so, Ever since then, God has been, he sort of set in motion this plan to eradicate that idea, to bring his, his son into the world, not to teach us how to eat from that tree again, but to bring a new tree into history, which is the tree of the cross. It was the tree of life, Revelation says. It was, it's why it says that the cross is like a tree, because it points back to the very beginning when trees were a glorious gift, but also a big problem you know but again but what what the solution is is not okay here's how you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you just kind of ate of it wrong the solution was to replace that whole thing with a new garden with a tree at its center which is which is the cross where god's son died for us and to eat of that tree and to pursue him and to know that goodness flows from him not in our pursuit of it so christianity is not the pursuit of the good it's the pursuit of jesus it's a byproduct of pursuing him we will, in him, sort of flow the rivers of good out of our heart. We have to get the order right there. Well, there's nothing distinct about us at all. And why did God's son have to die exactly? Torture to death for those six hours? Why did God spend spend that much if we're able to do it ourselves, if it's about just kind of doing good things? It creates all kinds of problems for our reading of the Bible, too, theologically, if it's not all about Christ and Christ, Christ alone. So, anyway. Just a little insight into how I was praying for you guys, how Spence and I always do, and um, for ourselves, that we are like Samson, a person of God slipping into thinking we're strong, and that leading to our, to our downfall. All right, so let's keep going here. Judges 16, 23 and following. After this, the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand." And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, remember he's blind at this time, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zerah and Eshtil in the the tomb of Manoah's father. He had judged Israel twenty years. Okay, let's get to the good news piece here. We've been talking a little bit about it. But Samson, the Christ figure, and and here's where I want to start this as kind of a preface to this whole section, is this, Judges 16, but also I guess 13, 14, 15, 16, but, but this story, Samson's story, is not a story about second chances. This is not a story about second chances. It's a story about Jesus. The good news of Judges 16 is not God is giving you a second chance to do better, but rather God is sending another Samson to destroy all notions of second chances and say, I am your chance at life. I am your salvation. Have you ever heard that Christianity is like a religion of second chances? Check that uh, in your mind and ask, is that in the Bible? It's not. I mean, in one sense, you could say, well, yeah, i made mistakes and then Christ was there. And so if that's in our minds, like a second chance, sure, but it's not good news. If we had two chances to be perfect, is that like good news? Or three? Or 10 billion chances? See, Jesus came into the world to die so that the idea, the notion of having second chances would be abolished, and what's in, what's in its stead or in its place is just him on the cross, saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Not here's how to do better next time which is somehow how passages like this get misconstrued, misconstrued and, and reconfigured. And so what, what helps us to see this is, uh, and there are many things here, but one is the manner of Samson's death is remarkably similar to Jesus's. So we started in chapter 13 this way. We looked at their birth narratives, how they're similar, and now their death narratives are also remarkably sim- similar as well. Just a few things to get us started here to show this, to teach through this, if this is new. And just by way of reminder, uh, one on this first row here, with Samson and Jesus in connection with, with their death, the Lord left both of them. The Lord left Samson, and then Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why has, has God the Father, so Jesus is, is the Son, why has my Father turned, turned his face away and sort of forsook him unto, unto this pain? And so on, on both levels, you have uh, just remarkable similarity there. And as a, as a sidebar, just with this first one, I won't do this with all these, though you, you kind of could, with this first one. Uh, a benefit of reading the Bible in a Christ centered way is if you don't do that, you come across narratives like Samson's and you see that he sinned and then the Lord left him. And if it's about us, what's the conclusion? Has God left me when I sinned 20,000 times yesterday? in the exact same way Samson did, basically, or something similar? If it's about you, fear. If Samson's just a picture of us, did God abandon me when I forgot about him? And the gospel says a glaring no to that, because he left Jesus instead of you. Christ experienced exile on the cross. He was forsook from God the Father. He was forsaken for us. So that now when we sin, God hasn't left us. He's just as close as he ever was. But do you see how like, good biblical theology protects us from bad theology and from fear and from discouragement and from bad views of God? If, you, if we don't read it this way, the only conclusion is, well, I guess there's just something to copy here in Samson's life, and then, wow, if that happened to him, will it happen to me too? So bad theology will hurt us. It will give us bad views of God. But seeing Christ in these stories leads us, it kind of bypasses us to this place of seeing, oh, this happened in Jesus' life. This is a prophecy. This is a shadow of him, not of, uh, not of me. Okay, so that, that's just a, a sidebar of that first piece. But let's just go through the rest of these quick. In both their cases, they were captured by Gentiles. In both their cases, they were put on display for entertainment. In both their cases, they were tortured before they were killed. In both their cases, they talked to God before their death. In, and this is the big one. In both their cases, with their deaths, they destroyed the true enemy. Uh, in Jesus' case, the true enemy of God's people, which was sin. In Samson's, in Samson's case, with his death, he judged. With his death, he killed the Philistines. With his sacrificial death, he liberated the people of God. You can't sound too much like Christ with a statement like that. It's like, that's it. That's it. That's the gospel. And in both cases, they were buried by close associates and friends and brothers and, and disciples. And we could go on. There's actually more. But those are some big ones. But he, here's another way of looking at this and, and just some more to tack on to that chart. In John 19, it says, this is in the New Testament about the death of Christ. After this, Jesus, knowing that, that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This passage alone points back to Samson on three levels. Just going to go through this relatively quickly here, but on three levels, uh, there is Samson-esque language being used here intentionally by God to point us back to Samson to show us, and, and sort of inform exactly what exactly is happening here on the cross. What's Jesus doing? And one of the answers to that is well, he's destroying spiritual Philistines. But anyway, three connection points here. One is just flat out scriptural fulfillment. So when it says he was very, uh, when it says that Jesus on the cross said, I thirst to fulfill the scripture, in that parenthetical there in, in yellow. Uh, the, one of the verses he's pointing back to is Judges 15, 18, which we didn't read today. We skipped chapter 15, but in that verse, in connection with delivering the Israelites, Samson, it says about him, he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord, and, and the Lord provided water after that. So, in other words, Samson and Jesus both, both thirst in connection with the hard work of destroying God's people's enemies. That's what uh, is looked back to here in, in John 19 in the parenthetical. The second piece is the thematic fulfillment. So uh, the drinking wine piece, when Jesus drinks the sour wine here on the cross right before his death, and, and again, I'm going I'm to talk about the Nazarite vow here for a second. If, you, if that's new to you and you weren't here two weeks ago, this might just be super nuanced, but just bear with me. What he's doing here when he does that, one of the things that the Bible's intending for us to see in connection with Samson, is he is ending the Nazarite vow that he took 20 hours prior to this when he said he wouldn't drink wine again until the kingdom of God would come. And at this juncture, it is. His his work is done. So so what this this means is that his time, Jesus' time of sacrifice and consecration to God the Father is over, which is why he says it's finished. The the work of salvation is finished at his dying breath. And the, the, the Nazarite vow he's taken, and again, it's cryptic, but he, he tells us this when he says at that, that last supper, I'm not going to drink wine anymore. And, and that's exactly what Nazarites do. But he's the sacrifice. He's the strong man. He's the demon wrestler. He's the one like Samson with the jawbone striking down all of our sins, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of accusatory demons. And so his work of saving the world from its sin in this capacity, this Nazarite-like surface, was ended. And that's why he drinks wine again. So it was like maybe the shortest Nazarite vow of history, but it was the best. And it was the, it, you, could, you could even say it was the one all other ones before this were anticipating and pointing to. The greatest Nazarite vow ever taken and the final Nazarite vow ever taken. So your job is not to take a Nazarite vow when you read about that in number six or to copy Samson. The point was Jesus, not you. Don't take a Nazarite vow. Don't vow things to God. You can't, you can't keep your promises, nor, nor can I. The point is to rest in the one who's promised to us that I'm going to shed my blood for you. I promise to save you. He's the Nazarite. You see how it's flipped there? How different that is? When, when Christ is the Nazarite, it's gospel. If we're the Nazarite, it's religion. It's ladder climbing, mask wearing, I am a strong person uh, type, type religion. All right, and then the, the third and final thing here is physical bodily fulfillment. So in Judges 16, it says, to, to remind you, Samson grasped the two pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So what we're saying here is, is try to picture Samson's posture at the moment of his death. So it would have looked like, and the way it's written here is when it talks about the arms, because you can ask why is it important and we understand. Okay, I get the idea about the left and the right hand, but it, it's carefully unpacking this so we might have an image in our mind. And so it would have looked basically just like this, right? Right in left hand, pushing against the two main pillars of the, the temple of Dagon, or this house, as it's called here, this large building. And then it says his head was bowed. So it would have looked basically just like this right at the moment of, of his death. As we ask the question, well, what in the world does that look like, right? It's, and I hope it's getting obvious at this point. I, I don't know if it is, but it's, it's exactly like Jesus' posture at the moment of his death, who also, and the scriptures are helpful here, both of them bowed, right? Samson bowed. Jesus bowed. Both of them had hands stretched out. Samson did. Jesus' has his arms stretched out. The, the physical bodily posture, even, is a prophecy. So that another Samson would come, good, but a Samson would come who would look like this for a minute before ultimately saving the people of God from their oppressors. Wow, isn't that amazing? Isn't God's word incredible, incredibly nuanced? You know, and, and the implications here are like myriad, but a couple of things. Oh, I forgot the pictures here. So basically it would have looked like that if that's, if it wasn't enough, my feeble attempts at demonstrating that, but basically like this, right? Arms stretched, head bowed. Um, Christ truly is the one. I mean, man, it's, it's about him. When Samson did this, his time was over, and he took a step back, the curtain shut, like John the Baptist, and then Christ stepped forward to truly, I mean truly do this at the, at the highest level, both with heads bowed implications um again there's many but i think one is god really 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 wants us to know that his love for us was so great that he sent his son to die on a cross for our sins don't miss it i don't care how many times you've heard it god wants you to hear it he wants us as a church this is our passage for today and this is from him not us this is what he had for us and and the point is christ he really wants us to know this he cares about us too, truly seeing that this is the center of the scriptures and the faith and that, that we're not really that, that bullseye. One, uh, if this is a new thing for you, one maybe helpful illustration. It, it kind of helped me this week to think about this, but the Bible is, is more like a, let use kind of a, a store analogy. The Bible is more like a niche garden shop than it is a Walmart. M- meaning everything in the store a store, so to speak, of the Bible, though slightly different in some ways, is still related to one theme, gardening, or in the Bible's case, Jesus. But like in Walmart's case, or think of like Hy-Vee, you guys ever been to a Hy-Vee, where you're, you're thinking you walk in there and there's no one been to a Hy-Vee. They have some of the cities now. Uh, but you walk in and you think, man, is this a Target, or is it a grocery store, or is it a food court, or is it a gas station, or a bakery, or, it's it's, it's insane. I Part of me kind of likes it, and I, I'm like, part of me is like, this is, get me out of here, but it's crazy. So anyway, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but it's not, like in a Hy-Vee or a Walmart, it, there's all these different things. The Bible's not like Jesus is one little thing of the Bible, but then there are actually other substantive, like actually, like at this sort of metaphysical and spiritual level, they're qualitatively different than Jesus. There's like six things, and Jesus is one of the, one of the six things. That's not how the Bible hangs together. It's more like the garden shop where where there's trowels and seeds and grass seed and sod and flowers and perennials and annuals and trellises and Christmas trees and pumpkins or whatever seasonally, and they're they're all sort of about the same thing. They're, They're different, but they're all about the same thing. That's what the Bible is like. We're seeing this play out here. And it's a happier message, too, to receive as well, right? If God's saying here, I am sending another Samson to rescue you, that's a much happier message than, like Samson, I am giving you a second chance to get it right. That's a terrible message. That's not what this is saying. And the manner of Samson's death tells us this. It screams it actually from the mountaintop so that we can't even say, oh, a couple of those things, that was just kind of a a chance thing. You know, that was a lucky thing that sort of just happened and they line up that way. You You saw what we went through. You saw the scriptures are intending us to see. It's unmissable. It's unavoidable. So our hard hearts can say that's chance and luck, but, you know, faith-filled, how does the Bible read itself approach, expects to see these things? And we actually see these connections and say, wow, this really isn't about us at all. It's not, about, it's not even about Samson. The, the second piece here is, this is a whole sermon, but a couple quick things. There is a hierarchy of ministry happening here in, in verse 30. So when it says, the dead Samson killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life, you know, think about that in a, with this cheat sheet way. Apply that to Christ in the New Testament. When we do that, it's the same thing as saying Jesus did more in his death than in his pre-cross ministry. Right? Jesus did more for us in his death than he did for us in his life. And that's exactly what the New Testament says. His death was greater than healing lepers and cripples and delivering the demonized and stilling storms. Those were great things but they weren't the best. Without the best thing, those former things would have meant absolutely nothing. And so like there is a hierarchy of ministry in Samson's life, not everything he did was on the same level, clearly from what verse 30 says, right? Not everything he did was on the same level. There's a hierarchy of things he did. So there is a hierarchy of ministry in Jesus' life. Some are good, others are great, some are less, and some are more. And, and so the call here for us when we read the Bible and think about, Christianity in our lives is do not focus on Jesus's pre-cross ministry. Read it. It's there for us. It's good, but it is not the essence of Christianity. And maybe that sounds crazy to some of you, but it's not. People go there all the time. I've seen it firsthand. I used to kind of be there personally, uh, where you look at some of the, the miracles, the physical ministries Jesus did, and you place that right up next to the death of Jesus or beyond it and say, this is what the church is supposed to be. People of social justice. People who love others. And they completely jettison the cross or at least partially bypass the fact that God's son was tortured to death for us. Is it an accident? And so if we think the essence of Christianity is loving other people, we're not just not reading the Gospels right. We're not reading Judges 16 right. We're completely missing the point that someone else lived who had a hierarchy of ministry, who was a lot like Jesus. So why are we not connected to? And say, well, maybe Jesus, everything Jesus did is not to be understood in the same level. There were lesser and greater things. To mix those things up leads to all kinds of disaster for us in, in just in real life, in our churches, individual lives. Uh, understand that Jesus' death is more important for you than anything else he did before his death. If, if we miss that, um, we, uh, we're as it says here, we're, we're in trouble. All right, so a couple last things here, guys. Um, this is, uh, man, l- like everything, this is a behold your king passage. It's a what are we going to do with this passage? It's a where are we with Christ? If this is all true, what does this mean for our life kind of passage? And I think kind of strangely, and this is not um, Delilah's intent, obviously, with her question here, but I think strangely we see something cool in this question with how the passage, um, the second part began, consider Delilah's question here. When, when she says to, to Samson, how can you say I love you when your heart is, is not with me? I, on one level, it's like a, a marital counselor. I want to say, well, that's like fodder right there for marital discussion, isn't it, and for, for counseling, but that's not the way I'm going to take it. But, but think about this as like a, a veiled God question for the church. Where God, sort of in the spirit of like First John, where, where it says, if you say you love God but hate Christians, you're a liar. You, you, those, those, those things can't coexist. So think about it in, that, in the spirit of that. Um, it's a great question. Is, is the gospel then precious to us? Where's our heart with it? Does his death matter? Uh, does, it, does his death move, move us? To, I mean, here's one way to kind of summarize what we just read is, this is the gospel in, in chapter 16. Jesus died with head bowed, arms stretched, when he gave his, light, his dying breath, he brought down the full weight of the temple of his body onto the unsuspecting heads of accusatory demons, your sins, your shame, and even death itself, all in love for you. And, and again, that Delilah-like question is, do you believe this or is your heart in this? And, and to go back to the first part of the passage, this is the rub. If we think we're strong, we won't want that. We certainly won't think we need it, at least as much as we would otherwise if we thought we were weak. So we'll want it less, or we'll want to graduate from this onto other things that are now more important for believers, or so we'll say, as if that's even possible. But saying I love you, God, you know, I I love you to God from the heart only can come from a place of weakness and desperate spiritual need. And recognition that this really happened for me for us god must really love me we might think if if he sent his son to go through that a week, for me a weakling a sinner an undeserving wretch it really is a scandalous kind of love and but but that's see that's where we talk about loving god that's where it comes from and so to flip that around even with all of that said it's not it's not ultimately about our heart towards god right if this is all true, it's about God's heart towards us. So that we, we never have to ask God, what it, where is your heart towards me? Why is your heart not with me? Like Delilah said to Samson, we never have to ask that to God because God gave everything to us. And he never divorces his people. So biblically, merrily, like it says, we're married to God. It's, we're so close to him now. God is our husband and the church is the bride. And he never divorces his people. And so the question is, if you feel like, man, my heart is not with God, welcome to the club. You know, the, the point is, we can work on that and consider that and ask the question, how do I get that? How, are, how do my emotions follow sort of the locomotive of fact and theology and truth? How does it follow behind? But at the same time, the good news here is you're saved not by your heart towards God, you're saved by God's heart towards you. And he made that really clear. Whispered in the story of Samson, declared through his son do you believe it have you received it are you weak and in need of it ask those questions you guys wherever you're at spiritually today uh, but believing and receiving that make no mistake if you believe that Jesus died for your sins to usher in God's forgiveness you will be saved whatever you've done whatever you've thought whatever your like level of theology is you know other than that than those main things whatever your guilt Really, really, really bad people like Samson are saved. Really bad people. Believe that and say, wow, if that's true, then maybe I can be saved as well. That's the humble, wow, you know, I'm a sinner. God's amazing kind of takeaway from, from this passage that, that he has for us. So let, let me let me pray for us and we'll take communion. God, thank you for this passage and the grace that there is here. Tons of grace, uh, tons of um humbling kind of prodding thoughts but but also tons of grace for sinners samson-like sinners like us and is that exactly what we are but by faith we are children of god and that is what we are so uh, god encourage us today and that as we take communion and worship and we pray for your, your presence here amen